join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, Doug Ford fires back at the federal government over the Greenbelt. Toronto's budget process tells us about the challenges that city and others face this year. We'll dig into some numbers and some news from this year's Rural Ontario Municipal Association Conference. And Ontario will build Canada's first small modular reactor, the first nuclear project in the province in quite some time. It's January 31st, 2023, so let's get to it. Well, JMM, I'm going to infer from the fact that you're still not here in this voice booth with me at 2180 Young Street that COVID is still a thing in your household. Have I got that right? You do indeed have that correct. Uh, I, I finally started testing positive uh, with rapid tests uh, late in the week, and uh, I was starting to get like weirdly anxious about whether I had like stolen COVID valor, whether I was claiming COVID without actually having it. It's uh, The pandemic's done a number on my brain. What can I tell you? Yeah, because you did a lot of rat tests and they always kept coming back negative. Yeah. So my wife was the first person to test positive in, in the household, and that's uh, why I stayed home last week. Started to feel really lousy Wednesday and Thursday, started getting better. Saturday was the first time I tested where I actually got the two lines. So go figure. And you sound better now. So I'm guessing that you're going to be back. Your sunny self will be back in these premises before too long. Uh, I I sure hope so. I do feel much better this week. And, uh, you know, I I definitely feel like I'm on the mint. (laughs) Good. Now, before we get to today's three items, we I think we really need to acknowledge the passing of one of the most iconic politicians in Canadian history. Hazel McCallion, the mayor of Mississauga for more than three and a half decades, died on Sunday, just two weeks shy of 102. We got that email in our inboxes. And and I think a lot of people have said this already. um, And it was one of those. Uh, moments where you see the inbox and it takes you a while to process what exactly you're reading because I I think like a lot of people it's just like wow I mean I almost didn't think Hazel McCallion was ever going to die. (laughs) Well it's a strange thing about about people who get that old. I know a a couple of weeks ago uh, one of the um, well I guess one of the most prominent and highly respected rabbis in Ontario a man named Bernard Baskin died at 102 and uh, you know I just seen him about a month earlier and you know, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, ironically enough, when they live longer than a century, I guess the chances of them dying are are greater than not. And yet it's still a shock when it happens. Uh, Steve, I know you covered uh, Mayor McCallion's exploits for many uh, decades. Uh, have some stories you can share? Well, uh, l- let me let me try this one, because uh, I remember the first time that I met Hazel McCallion. I remember the first story I covered. This is more than 30 years ago. I was at CBC television at the time. And there were two kind of young 20-something hotshots that (laughs) had tried to rent an arena. It was an old sort of uh, dumpy arena in Mississauga. And they had put a fortune into the place to try to bring this old arena back to life as what I think they called back in the day a discotheque. (laughs) And, they I mean, the lights were there. The bar was there. The dance floor was there. They'd really spent a lot of money bringing it back. And they were about to have this grand opening, except that... They didn't have the proper permits. And Hazel McCallion showed up and she dressed these kids down in front of all the media that were assembled. And she said, I'm not letting you open. 
you boys haven't done your homework, and I'll never forget this line, this is not how we do business in Mississauga. And she shut them down, and they had to go with their tails between their legs back to City Hall and get the proper permits, and of course eventually did have their grand opening. But it was just another great example of two of the best lines that I ever ever remember Hazel McCallion using, you got to do your homework, and this is not how we do business in Mississauga. She was quite the force. Last August, I did the Minister's Forum for the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, and uh, I, I, I think they won't mind me telling this story uh, now. We are told that there are ground rules when you conduct the Minister's Forums, and it's really intended for elected officials to ask questions of the the cabinet who are there on stage. And people go to these mics and they, they ask these questions. But there were two exceptions, I was told, that uh, to the rule that it has to be currently serving elected officials. One was um, representatives of uh, an Indigenous First Nation. They are not technically municipalities, but AMO welcomes them to ask questions uh, at the Minister's Forum. The other exception is Hazel McCallion. If she wants to ask a question. <laughs> Hazel wants to ask a question. Hazel gets to ask a question. And, and you know, I, I was told by AMO those are the ground rules. And I said, well, there is not enough money in the world for me to get between Hazel and the mic that she wants to speak at. So <laughs> That's fine. I, I remember back in the day, you know, Hazel didn't start as the mayor of Mississauga. She was actually the mayor of one of the many municipalities in the area before Miss, Mississauga was sort of created. Uh, it was the government of Pre- Premier Bill Davis that created the super city, if you like, of Mississauga and regional government. This we're going back now to the early and mid-1970s. And Hazel McCallion was the mayor of Streetsville, and she was furious with Bill Davis's plan to put all of these small towns together into the current-day city of Mississauga. And she used to rail against the evils of the Davis government. How dare they take away our beautiful, small little towns and municipalities in favor of this big, amorphous, impersonal thing. And then, of course, she became the mayor of this big, personal, uh, impersonal, amorphous thing and served a, a record level of time in the office. And Bill Davis used to tease her about it all the time, <laughs> saying, you know, Hazel, if it wasn't for me and my farsightedness, you'd never have been in the Guinness World Book of Records. So take it back. All the terrible stuff you said about me over the years, take it back. They had a lot of yucks about that over the years. <laughs> Did she ever take it back? She never did. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. Anyways, rest in peace, Hazel McCallion, a true pioneer. She will definitely be missed. And now on to issue one. This is our jurisdiction. Uh, We we have 300,000 more people every year uh, coming to to our province. And I just want to build homes because the next question, you're going to say, you know, where are we going to put these people? You can't complain about not having enough housing for years and then complain when we come up with a solution to do it. The governments of Canada and Ontario have been getting along pretty well since COVID hit, but there was a fairly significant bump in the road, as you just heard from Doug Ford. The Premier was not at all amused that the Federal Environment Minister, Stephen Guibault, suggested Ontario's plans to change the boundary and develop the Greenbelt run counter to the goals of preparing for climate change. The narwhal, quoted Gibo as saying, Ottawa, quote, will be looking at the potential use of federal tools to stop some of these projects. Okay, pick up the story there. What do we think? 
you know, this is a departure, I would say, from the uh, collaborative tone that we have seen between uh, Ottawa and Queen's Park uh, over the last, let's say, two years, three years since uh, COVID hit. Um, you know, there have been previous moments where uh, the Trudeau government has been asked whether they want to pick a fight with uh, uh, Doug Ford, and mostly they have not. And you can think too recently, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked uh, last week about Ontario allowing more uh, OHIP-funded services to be delivered through private uh, for-profit clinics. Uh, you could imagine a Liberal Prime Minister, uh, you know, criticizing a Tory government uh, for doing that or, or, or saying that they were going to defend uh, public national health care. Uh, Trudeau did not take the bait, or at least has not taken the bait yet. Ford, for his part, I think has has publicly been pretty consistently uh, congenial uh, when he's asked about whether uh, Ontario will accept uh, conditions or strings attached to more federal money for uh, health care. Ford has said... Yeah, basically, you know, he's not averse to some conditions, some strings attached. He just wants the money, <laughs> understandably. <laughs> but there does seem to be a, uh, a line in the sand being drawn here. Oftentimes in the past, when these bumps in the road have occurred, the two men, I suspect, have a chat offline and patch things up. So we'll have to keep an eye on this one and see if that's possible, because we know the premier has expended a great deal of political capital to allow development in the former Greenbelt. The polls have been uniformly negative on that move, and we'll see whether the Prime Minister intends to rein in his environment minister, who, after all, is a former environmental activist and thinks building more sprawl is just inconsistent with fighting climate change. You know, there's the politics of it, and uh, then there's the I guess, policy side things, the law side of things. And it wouldn't be this podcast if we didn't get a, a little weedsy here. So I won't spend too long on this. But I, I do want to say that, you know, if Ottawa chooses to, it is not crazy to assert that there's a federal interest here. Uh, listeners may remember that we talked about a possible federal intervention to stop the building of the Highway 413 a few months ago. This is another uh, provincial project that is panned by environmentalists as driving more sprawl. And uh, the same principle broadly applies here. You know, while both the province and feds have different environmental responsibilities, where the feds do have jurisdiction, they are allowed to constrain provincial action. So there is, for example, a Federal Species at Risk Act that uh, Gubo cited as a law Ottawa can enforce to ensure that development in the Green Belt doesn't go forward if it's going to harm designated species. I think there's also an argument, at least in some of the lands that we're talking about, that the federal government could have a concern about the impact on the Rouge Urban National Park. This is a national park, a federal park, on the east end of Toronto that is uh, close, if not uh, adjacent to some of the lands the Ford government is uh, allowing for development. All that said, it's a big country, right? Uh, there are environmental issues in each of the 10 provinces and three territories that Ottawa could hypothetically have an interest in. So it is notable what specific issues and where the federal environment minister chooses to speak on. And I don't think it's terribly cynical to say that, like with the 413, there is a political benefit to the federal liberals being seen to uh, pick a fight with Doug Ford over this. You know, JMM, you've touched on what is one of the, I believe, one of the great truisms of Canadian politics and particularly Ontario politics. And that is, and it's been this way for years, Tories at Queen's Park, Liberals federally. And it, it is in the interest of both of these politicians to, <laughs> to have Tories at Queen's Park and Liberals in power on Parliament Hill, uh, because the chances are if those two things stay the same, 
then those two things stay the same, right? <laughs> Stephen Harper used to have this line, the longer I'm prime minister, the longer I'm prime minister. And what we know both these gentlemen want to keep their jobs. Yes, indeed. Anyway, on to issue two. The cost of fuel for if people think about it for thousands of buses, uh, police cars, ambulances, fire trucks, and many other city vehicles, that uh, in and of itself, increased fuel costs will add $46 million to the city's budget. That's Toronto Mayor John Tory speaking earlier this month about the challenges that the provincial capital faces in balancing its budget this year. Uh, like everyone else, the city is dealing with inflation generally, but the city of Toronto might actually have it worse in some ways than you or I, Steve, because Toronto can't pay the power and gas bills with its credit card. Or, to put it a bit more officially, municipalities in Ontario are forbidden from running operating deficits. They can go into debt to finance important infrastructure, but they can't use debt to pay the day-to-day -day bills of running a city. That means, for the province's largest city, Tory and his allies on council are proposing a 7% increase in property taxes when all of the various increases are taken into account. There's a 5.5% property tax increase, and then there's a city building fund. But it will add up to about the rate of inflation uh, overall, which is, you know, okay, it's in line with inflation, but it's also much higher than it has been under Tory or his predecessors before now. Now, you have to imagine that Mayor Tory doesn't love that. It's tough all over. But this year, more than in the past, he's the one responsible for the budget now, right? That's right. This is the first time that the budget is being written in Toronto with the so-called strong mayor powers that were uh, given to the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa by uh, Doug Ford at the beginning of this new mandate. Uh, so this means that Tory, as mayor, can write the budget he wants, and then he can veto changes that councillors might suggest at council, unless those changes have two-thirds support on the council floor. So obviously, it's going to be very interesting to see this unfold, as it will later in February. The budget will be debated by the full city council later next month. It is also going to be something I think folks at Queen's Park will be keeping an eye on, since if it goes well, they have uh, all but said that they will expand these powers to other large municipalities. Okay, let's just set the politics aside for a second and get back to the dollars and cents. Toronto's not the only city dealing with inflation, obviously. What else is driving up everyone's costs? Well, and this is also what makes this an on-poly story, because uh, municipalities are going into this budget season dealing with the changes brought in by the government's Bill 23 last fall, which uh, substantially rewrote the rules around development charges for affordable housing. Uh, development charges... Uh, I assume our listeners know this, but just a refresher, uh, they are the fees that municipalities levy to uh, pay for infrastructure and services that go along with new housing and the people who tend to live in new housing. And in fast-growing cities like Toronto, but not only Toronto, those fees can make up a large chunk of the annual budget. The flip side of that, however, is that these fees also add tens of thousands of dollars in costs to every new home that gets built, which is why the province is trying to limit them. The Association of Municipalities of Ontario estimates that the total bill for municipalities across the province will come to $5 billion, and they have been seeking some kind of guarantee that they won't have to foot that entire bill themselves. Well, it just so happens that last week was the annual meeting of not AMO, but ROMA. That's another acronym in municipal affairs, the Rural Ontario Municipalities Association, a big gathering for smaller towns and cities. Uh, the government has always had some... Good news announcements that they like to make at events such as this. Uh, okay, tell us, did, did they drop any good news or any bonbons for rural municipalities this time? 
not really. There was kind of a status quo speech from uh, Steve Clark, the Minister of Municipal Affairs this year. Um, you know, they, they always like to go over all of the, the great things that they have done for their municipal partners in the past year and things that we frankly already knew about. They have suggested that they are going to audit some municipalities and get a better look of their, uh, their balance sheets. And you can see that Queen's Park is uh, really very skeptical about the claims that this is like financial Armageddon <laughs> and they are going to see whether the, the fiscal state for these municipalities is quite as dire as they make it out to be. There has also been some discussion about uh, funding being extended to uh, cities, uh, both Toronto and other cities, uh, to help them get through what everybody acknowledges is a very tough budget year. I would say that specifically on the Bill 23 file, we, we still don't really have a very clear picture of uh, how or even if municipalities are going to be made whole. And you know what I found interesting about that is that, and, and here's where I actually got to pinch hit for you one day, because normally you you moderate uh, traditionally over the years the so-called bear pit session, where, I mean, pretty much the whole cabinet shows. I, I don't think every single cabinet minister was there, but darn near all of them were there. And it's an indication of how much... Uh, I guess, schlep, influence uh, the rural municipalities have with this provincial government that so many ministers showed up. And as you pointed out earlier in the story about Hazel McCallion, uh, the local politicians go to the microphones and they get to ask questions directly to the cabinet ministers in a room full of a thousand people. So it's an opportunity to either, uh, you know, hold their feet to the fire or genuinely inquire about something. I thought, and so I pinch hit for you and I moderated that one, I was expecting every single question to be about Bill 23 and how are we going to handle this and are you going to pony up some money so that we can deal with the less revenue that we're going to lose. And I thought Steve Clark, the housing minister, would get all the questions. And in fact, there wasn't a single question about Bill 23. Now, I nosed around afterwards and and the I, I guess the, the speculation was... They're not changing their mind about it, so we're not going to waste our time asking questions about it. So that one was a done deal. But it really was quite fascinating finding out the myriad issues that local politicians all across Ontario have to deal with, everything from housing to the environment uh, and, and on and on and on, uh, mental health, uh, regular health, access to doctors. Um, you know, it, it, there's just myriad issues that local politicians have to deal with, and they all came to the fore at that bear pit session. So I'm not, I, I'm really not trying to say I'm glad you were sick because I got a good education <laughs> filling in for you. But uh, let's say I made the best of a bad situation. How's that? Well, I, I will say I'm quite glad that I did not give the entire provincial government COVID by insisting <laughs> on showing up that day. Uh, so I did not. Um, but yeah, I love the Minister's Forum, the Bear Pit sessions, even before I was being asked to moderate them, which is a, a lot of fun. Uh, going as a reporter, it is so, uh, I, as you say, it's so eye-opening. Uh, the, the issues that, frankly, as a journalist located in downtown Toronto, uh, I just don't get a lot of exposure to. Um, it's it, it, yeah, it's very, very educational. One thing I learned, John Michael, is that I'm really not very good at filling in for you because I warned everybody right off the top. I said, I've never done this before. This is normally McGrath's thing, but I'll do the best I can. And then I pointed to the microphone, which I thought was microphone one. And I said, OK, we got four microphones here. Let's start with microphone one. And there was dead silence because, of course, the microphone I was pointing to was microphone two. And the person at microphone two was sort of pointing me the other way saying, hey, dummy, it's over on the other side of the room. Anyway, uh, I hope you're well enough to do it next year because they're certainly not going to invite me back given how badly I did this year. <laughs> on to issue three. 
We all know that eyes are on us now as the world watches as we execute and ultimately deliver on this first-of-a-kind project. That voice belongs to Brenda McDonald. She is a vice president at Ontario Power Generation, OPG, the crown corporation that owns and operates the Darlington nuclear power plant. That existing power station east of Toronto is about to get some company. Ontario is set to host Canada's first SMR, small modular reactor. That is a miniaturized nuclear reactor. The project was first announced in December of 2021, and now site preparation is underway at the Darlington New Nuclear Project site that's in Clarington in Durham region. They are going to be building four of these reactors. The first one is slated to come online not for a long time, 2028, but when it's up and going, it should power about 300,000 homes. JMM, this is a very different approach to nuclear power, where in the past, bigger and more expensive was always the way. Not anymore, I guess. You know, Darlington is um, one of the unfortunate poster children of how the old style of nuclear power can go wrong. Projects can go over budget in big, big ways. And when the original uh, nuclear plant was built in uh, the 1980s, Darlington did just that. It ended up costing more than twice what was originally planned. So now the nuclear industry is trying something else, and they have uh, spent many years advocating for small modular reactors. So instead of a, a reactor that might be a thousand megawatts or more, this one being planned at Darlington is a, a single 300 megawatt reactor. But uh, then there's that second word, modular. And the idea is that you could still get a thousand megawatts of power or more by building these small reactors uh, multiple times and, and ganging them all together in, in a, a pack. And so you get the same amount of power, but the idea is sort of that you would get better at learning to build them as you go along. Instead of building this one-off huge project, you build uh, a bunch and you get better at doing it. So it's sort of like mass producing nuclear power. Right. What's the public's uh, sense of acceptance on all of this? You know, uh, the nuclear industry actually has a surprising amount of support in Canada generally, and in particular in the sort of political class here in Ontario. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. But as it turned out, um, Angus Reid did a poll earlier this month and found that in Ontario, 70% uh, of people either support or strongly support expanding nuclear power. That's higher than the Canadian average, but most provinces showed a pretty strong support. The biggest notable exception is Quebec. Uh, that same poll did find, however, that solar and wind remain broadly more popular than uh, nuclear or certainly uh, fossil fuel alternatives. Uh, aside from the polling, the general audience just might not grasp how much support the nuclear industry has at the political level, certainly in Ontario, uh, and it's no mystery why. Jobs. Uh, a 2021 Conference Board of Canada study showed strong economic benefit to Ontario from uh, building and operating a single uh, SMR reactor. 700 jobs during the project development, 1,600 jobs during manufacturing and construction, uh, 200 jobs during operations, and 160 jobs uh, to decommission the reactor after 60 years of lifespan. The estimated positive impact on GDP could reach more than $2.5 billion, according to that uh, conference board study, uh, and it would increase provincial revenues by more than $870 million. So, Again, no real mystery why nuclear remains very popular with leaders in this province. And of course, in times of climate change, there's no smoke going up a smokestack in a nuclear reactor. So it is considered part of the, the greener environment power generators look to. Now, in the clip that we heard off the top, Brenda McDonald said the eyes of the world 
are watching here in Ontario, and presumably that means this story has implications outside of just our provincial boundaries? That's the hope. Uh, the province is clearly hoping to uh, be a pioneer in this technology that could then be uh, exported uh, either to other provinces or eventually uh, around the world. Uh, they estimate the international market to be $150 billion a year by 2040 if things go well. Uh, Ontario has already signed an agreement with Alberta, Saskatchewan, and New Brunswick to spread the uh, technology behind this SMR if it does well at Darlington. And GE Hitachi, the uh, vendor for the, the design that has been chosen at Darlington, they obviously want to market this to other utilities around the world. So uh, Ontario is effectively uh, a test case to see if it works. And a lot of people have a lot very literally invested in the result. No, for sure. But um, how do I put this delicately? I have covered the nuclear industry in this province for a very long time. What do I say? These things in the past almost never come in on time or on budget. And the numbers that are being forecast are incredibly buoyant. Uh, I guess I asked the question, what could possibly go wrong? I guess everything. But uh, I don't know. Why don't you take, take a more responsible kick at that? Well, it's nuclear energy, and I don't need to tell our listeners that there are specific types of risks that come with that. Um, it is this big question mark, right, whether it's actually different this time, right? The nuclear industry spent much of the 2000s and early 2010s telling anybody who would listen that there was a nuclear renaissance underway and, you know, all, all these big shiny new reactors were going to, you know, promise a, a brand new era of clean energy. And that was back when they were pitching, you know, basically newer designs of, of classic large reactor types. And none of it, ha well, almost none of it happened. I think one or two reactors actually got built and they predictably went over budget. So the, the hope now is that they will get one SMR built and if they can keep it to, you know, within shouting distance of its budget, they'll call that a victory. And then if they can build two or three more, and that should be possible at Darlington, just in terms of what they have the legal and regulatory approval for. If they can get those built and they can get good at building it, then, you know, it could go well. But, you know, they need to prove it. Gotcha. And that is the On Poly podcast for January 31st, 2023. Don't forget to check out our weekly On Poly newsletter. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on actually one of the great leaders in Ontario history. David Onley, the former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, was laid to rest this week. A really spectacular funeral took place in Midtown Toronto on Monday, and John Michael and I will have our say on the contribution that David Onley made to this part of the world. Quite striking. Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahir Tajvidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth, Carla Lucetta, and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID, as I don't have to remind Mr. McGrath, is not over yet, people. So let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Try to do at least one of those. <laughs> I'll see you next time, Steve. <laughs>